Good evening, everyone. As Colm said, my name is Caroline Fennell, and I'm truly delighted to welcome you all here this evening on behalf of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission to this, our first Human Rights and Equality Lecture. We intend this to be an annual event from now on, but obviously tonight is a very special night. It's wonderful to see such a great turnout, and it's such an honour to have Professor Philippe Sands QC to deliver this, our inaugural lecture. We're delighted that you accepted our invitation to attend, all of you, and we're particularly delighted to extend a warm welcome to Professor Sands. And we're very, very grateful indeed to all the members of civil society, to all the very senior members of, of the judiciary, and to all the lawyers and friends and supporters who are here for this important event this evening. But before I invite Professor Sands to address you, I would like to say a few words about the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. The Commission, as you know, was established in November 2014 as Ireland's independent national human rights institution and national equality body. It has a mandate to protect and promote human rights and equality in Ireland, to work towards the elimination of human rights abuses and discrimination, and to build a culture of respect for human rights, equality, and intercultural understanding in this state. The Commission comprises 15 members, led by a Chief Commissioner, all appointed by our President, Michael D. Higgins, and we are supported by the work of a dedicated staff, led by the Director, and as such, our work forms a central part of the state's human rights and equality infrastructure. Earlier this year, the Commission launched our second strategic statement, 2019 to 2021. And in this phase of the Commission's work, our focus is on how we engage with the society we serve and how we can more substantially effect change. We have a diverse range of legislative powers in which we can hold both public bodies and private institutions to account for decisions which impact upon human rights and equality of the people living in Ireland today. Working to ensure that the dignity and worth of every person is respected means that our focus must be on protecting the rights of those who face the greatest barriers to justice, to those who are the most vulnerable, or those who have the least capacity or power to vindicate their rights. And the Commission recognises that while we have a distinct role to play in advancing human rights and equality, we are part of that wider ecosystem in Ireland that works to achieve a more just and inclusive Ireland, not least the vibrant civil society members we have here today, many of whom are with us. But we're also fully aware that we're living in a period of great uncertainty in our global history. Human rights and equality norms are facing unprecedented challenges. And recent years have seen a worrying trend of populism, unilateralism, and racist and discriminatory rhetoric in mainstream political and social discourse. And Ireland is not immune to this trend, as the Commission has stated most recently to the UN, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, the encroachment on fundamental rights and freedoms in Europe and beyond should be a warning to all of us who believe that the protection of human rights and equal dignity of all persons are the hallmarks of a healthy democracy. Collaboration across the island of Ireland and across Europe and globally is therefore becoming all the more important in these very challenging times for human rights. And because of this, the Commission wishes to open up more opportunities for dialogue on human rights and equality, and so strengthen the culture for respecting human rights, equality, and intercultural understanding. Therefore, I'm particularly delighted to welcome Professor Philippe Sands, QC, 
who has written extensively on the origins and trajectory of human rights and is a practicing human rights lawyer to speak about the future path of human rights in these uncertain terms. Philippe Sands, QC, I'm sure is well known to you. He is a professor of law at University College London and a practicing barrister and founder member of Matrix Chamber in London. He's appeared as counsel before international courts and sits as an arbitrator. He is the author of Lawless World in 2005 and Torture Team in 2008 and several academic books on international law. East meets East West Street on the origins of crimes against humanity and genocide 2016 won the 2016 Bailey Gifford, formerly Samuel Johnson Prize, the 2017 British Book Awards Non-Fiction Book of the Year, and the 2018 Prix Montaigne. The sequel, which is also the subject of a BBC podcast, will be published in April 2020. Philippe Sands is president of English Pen and a member of the board of the Hay Festival. He has recently appeared as counsel before the International Court of Justice in The Hague, where he was part of the legal team representing the Gambia, which has brought a case against Myanmar due to its treatment of the Rohingya minority within the country. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to invite Professor Philip Sands QC to address you on Beyond East-West Street, the path of human rights. Professor Sand. Thank you very much, uh, Colm and Carolyn. It's a great happiness to be back uh, in Dublin. It's a place that I'm very familiar with, that I know well, and that I am always uh, happy uh, to be uh, at, as I am throughout uh, Ireland. And I'm here really to mark my support for the wonderful work uh, of this commission, on which I'll say a little bit more uh, in due course. We're together as a group, but each of us is also here as an individual. And I long ago came to understand that my various activities, teaching, writing, litigating, are informed by my background. I did not come into the world as a blank slate. None of us do. In his fine autobiography, Interesting Times, the historian Eric Hobsbawm recognize the complex connection between who we are and what we do. And he noted what he called the profound way in which the interweaving of our life and times and the observation of both help to shape our sense of history. I'm not a historian, I'm a lawyer, and I'm one who focuses on matters international. I'm interested in how the law functions, how rules come into being, how they're interpreted and applied, how they affect behavior, in particular, in relation to human rights. My curiosity about a person's life and times concerns the way it might inform the world. And the experiences, my experiences, of the past quarter of a century in my work, not least in the courtroom, point to a rather clear conclusion. Individual lives, memory, and personal histories really matter, and they really make a difference. East West Street was nearly seven years in the writing. It's not about the life of one man, but of four men. And it seeks to understand how the circumstances of each contributed to the road he took, and how the different roads traveled came together 
and change the system of international rules that is my daily work and actually the daily work of many people in this room. But the book also touches on a more personal theme, how these four interweaving lives influenced my own path. And it asks some big questions, questions that turn largely on matters of identity. Who am I? How do I wish to be defined as an individual or as a member of a group or many groups? How do I want the law to protect me as an individual or as a member of a group? These questions are as pertinent today as when the legal concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide were coined back in 1945, the moment when our modern law of human rights came into being, when the United Nations was created with, as one of its purposes, to promote and encourage respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. That was a revolutionary moment, the first time in human history that international law recognized that the rights of a state over its own population were not unlimited. East-West Street came about entirely by chance. In the spring of 2010, I was immersed in my world teaching at University College London, writing law review articles, doing cases in The Hague. An invitation came from Ukraine, an email from the law faculty of a city that was called Lemberg during the Austro-Hungarian Empire until 1918, then Lwów until 1939, the Polish years, and then after 1945, Lviv. Would I come and deliver a public lecture on my work on crimes against humanity and genocide and talk about the cases and academic writings about the Nuremberg trial and its consequences for our world today? I accepted. I had long been fascinated by Nuremberg, the words, the images, the sounds. I was mesmerized, perhaps because I'm a barrister, by tiny points of detail in the transcript the grim evidence, the books, the diaries, the memoirs, the testimony, the judges, even the love affairs that went on behind the scenes. I loved films like Judgment at Nuremberg, the 1961 winner of an Oscar made memorable by Spencer Tracy, not least his momentary unexpected flirtation with Marlena Dietrich, and a single line from his closing judgment in the film, and I quote, we stand for truth, justice, and the value of a single human life. The Nuremberg judgment blew a powerful wind into the sails of a germinal human rights movement. Sure, there was a smell of victor's justice, but the case was catalytic. For the first time in history, the leaders of a country could be put on trial before an international court. My work as a barrister, rather than my writings, I suspect, caused the invitation to come from Lviv. In the summer of 98, I was peripherally involved in the negotiations in Rome that led to the creation of the International Criminal Court, which would have jurisdiction over crimes against humanity and genocide. The essential difference between the two concepts is on who is protected and why.
If 3,000 people are systematically murdered, it will inevitably be a crime against humanity. But will it be a genocide? That depends on the intentions of the killers and the ability to prove that intention. To establish a genocide, you have to prove that the act of killing is motivated by a special intent, the intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. And so the two crimes invented in 1945 overlap. Every genocide is also a crime against humanity, but not every crime against humanity is a genocide. A few months after both crimes were inscribed into the statute of the ICC, Senator Pinochet was arrested in London on charges of genocide and crimes against humanity perpetrated in Chile, laid against him by a Spanish prosecutor. The House of Lords ruled that he was not entitled to immunity from the English courts. That too was a revolutionary moment. In the years that followed, the gates of international justice creaked open after five decades of quiet during the Cold War. Cases from the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda soon landed on my desk and others followed relating to allegations in the Congo, Libya, Afghanistan, Chechnya, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Sierra Leone, Guantanamo, Iraq, and so on. They were always based on the new rules that came into being after 1945. I became involved in too many cases of mass killing. I have seen too many mass graves. Some of the cases concerned crimes against humanity, the large-scale killing of individuals. Others were about genocide, the destruction of groups. These two distinct crimes, with their different emphases on the individual and the group, grew side by side. Occasionally, I'd pick up hints about the origins of the two terms and the connection to arguments that were first made in Nuremberg's courtroom 600. But I never really inquired as to what actually happened in that courtroom. And I knew little about the personal stories behind the trial. So the invitation from Lviv gave me a chance to explore that history. Now I could say that I made the trip to give a lecture. And at this point, I want to do a slide. Uh, oh, hang on. So it's a little delayed. I could say that I made the trip to give a lecture, but that would not be true. I actually made the trip because of this young man who was my grandfather, Leon Buchholz, who was born in that city in 1904. He called it Lemberg when he spoke in German and Lwów when he spoke in Polish. In his wonderful slim volume, Moi Lwów, Published in 1946, the Polish poet Joseph Witlin describes the essence of being a Lvovian. It is, he writes, an extraordinary mixture of nobility and roguery, of wisdom and imbecility, of poetry and vulgarity. But, Witlin writes, nostalgia likes to falsify our flavors and it tells us to taste nothing but the sweetness of Lvov 
today. I know, he concludes, people for whom Lvov was a cup of gall. And it was a cup of gall for my grandfather, Leon, buried deep in a hinterland of which he never spoke to me or my brother. His silence barely covered the wounds of the family he left behind in 1914 when he moved to Vienna and then lost forever after 1939 when he left that city. The first moment I set foot in Lviv in the autumn of 2010, it felt familiar, a bit like meeting a long-lost relative. Why I had that reaction caused me to explore writings on the relationship between grandparent and grandchild. I was directed to the work of Maria Torok and Nicholas Abraham, two Hungarian psychoanalysts. They wrote, what haunts us truly are the gaps left within us by the secrets of others. And these are the words with which East West Street opens. Secrets. My grandfather's secret was that he actually came from a huge family, one that was centered in the town of Lemberg and its environs. Dozens of uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, and distant relatives. The family grew and grew, and then war came. By the spring of 1945, out of a family of about 80 souls, he was the only one still alive from Galicia. He had fled from Vienna to Paris. And indeed, in preparing the lecture, I found the actual expulsion order which caused him to be thrown out. Translated into English, it is written in German, the document says as follows. The Jew, Buchholz Morris Leon, shall leave the territory of the German Reich by December the 25th, 1938. He was able to be expelled because he had been made stateless. And that, no doubt, is one of the reasons I am so totally and constitutionally opposed to making anyone stateless under any circumstances. I had always assumed that my grandfather had left Vienna with his wife, Rita, my grandmother, and his one-year-old daughter, Ruth, my mother. But in the course of the research, I learned that this was not the case, that he actually left by himself, that his daughter traveled to Paris a few months later, and that his wife remained in Vienna for three more years. It seemed that something else had intervened in their lives to cause the separation. Why did Leon leave Vienna on his own? How on earth did my mother Ruth get to Paris by herself, aged less than one? And why did Rita remain in Vienna, allowing herself to be separated from her only child? These are big questions. I found more documents in my grandfather's papers, hunting for clues. As a litigator, which is a sort of lesser amateur historian come psychiatrist, you sort of learn that every scrap of paper, every photograph, is capable of hiding information which is not immediately knowable. It's the muck of evidence that I love. I've learned to look carefully, always keep an open mind, attend to the unexpected, find the dots, try to join the dots, and persist, persist, 
persist because nothing is ever only what it seems. And two items stood out. The first one was a tiny scrap of thin yellow paper. It was folded in half. One side was blank, the other side bore a name and address written firmly in pencil. The writing was angular and strong. It said, Miss E. M. Tilney, Manuka, Bluebell Road, Norwich, Angleterre. The second item was this tiny black and white photograph. It was taken in 1949. It showed a middle-aged man staring intently into the camera. Faint smile across the lips. He wore a pinstripe suit with a white handkerchief folded neatly into his breast pocket, a white shirt, and a polka dot bow tie, which for me at least somehow emphasized a sense of mischief. On the back of the photograph, in blue ink, were written the words, Herzliche Grüße aus Wien, September 1949. Warmest wishes from Vienna. And there was a signature which was firm but indecipherable. I asked my mother who Miss Tilney was and who was the man in the bow tie. She said she didn't know and I didn't really believe her. I pinned the two scraps on the wall above my desk and turned to the lecture that I had to write. I've taken you on a little family detour, but let's go back to the lecture that I had to write and several coincidences I encountered. I was enormously surprised to learn in writing the lecture that the man who put the concept of crimes against humanity into international law was actually a student at the University of Lviv. But those who invited me did not know it. His name was Hirsch Lauterpacht, and he was born in the small town of Zhulkiev, about 15 miles north of Lviv. He enrolled at the university law faculty, in 1919 moved to Vienna, got a doctorate in law. Four years later, in 1923, he arrived in London, newly married, and he became a renowned academic, first at the LSE and then at Cambridge University. In 1945, he published a book that laid the foundation for our modern system of human rights. He gave it the title, An International Bill of the Rights of Man, and it offered a new idea to recognize that every human being, every human being had basic rights under international law as an individual because they are a human being. He prepared a draft convention, one that gave effect to his belief that, I quote, the individual human being is the ultimate unit of all law. In April 1945, as the war in Europe ended, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin agreed that senior Nazi leaders would be put on trial. The British hired Lauterpacht to assist in the prosecution to work with Robert Jackson, the chief prosecutor. Jackson traveled to London to draft the tribunal's charter as the four powers, the US, Britain, France, the Soviet Union, disagreed about the list of crimes over which the tribunal would exercise jurisdiction, Jackson was driven to Cambridge to meet his old friend, 
Lauterpacht. They had tea in Lauterpacht's garden. The two men discussed the problems of crimes. Lauterpacht, you can see him here sitting in his garden, suggested that it might be a good idea to insert titles into the charter to help public understanding. Jackson reacted positively, and so Lauterpacht put forward another idea on atrocities against civilians, on which the Soviets and Germans were deeply divided. Lauterpacht had a long-standing academic interest in this subject, as well as a deep personal interest, for he had no news about his family who were lost in Lemberg, a matter about which he said nothing to Robert Jackson. Why not, he said, why not refer to the atrocities which are committed against civilians as crimes against humanity? Here you can see the words in Lauterpacht's own hand. The term will cover massive atrocities against individuals, torture, murder, disappearance, and introduce a new concept into international law. Jackson likes the idea and takes it to London. A few days later, Crimes Against Humanity is incorporated into the Nuremberg Charter in Article 6. Preparing the Lviv Lecture, of course, also required me to focus on the concept of genocide. And this brings me to a second surprise. A man called Raphael Lemkin invented that word, and amazingly, he also came from Lviv and studied at the very same law school. And once again, those who had invited me to the law faculty did not realize that he had a connection with their university, to which he arrived two years after Lauterpacht left. He became, in due course, a public prosecutor in Warsaw, and in 1933, for a League of Nations meeting, proposed new international crimes to combat what he called barbarity and vandalism by a state against its own people. Unlike Lauterpacht, his focus was not on the protection of individuals, but on the protection of groups. But the timing was not good. Hitler had just taken power in Germany. In 1939, when Germany invaded Poland, Lemkin escaped from Warsaw and eventually made his way to Sweden. He then left for America to Durham, North Carolina, where he had been offered refuge at Duke University. He traveled with almost no money, no personal belongings, but a vast quantity of suitcases. Each of them was filled with paper. Thousands and thousands of decrees promulgated by the Nazis across occupied Europe. He'd collected the material in Sweden, carted it three quarters of the way around the world, and now, at Duke University, analyzed it. In November 1944, he published a book with the title, Axis Rule of Occupied Europe. It examined the Nazi actions. Chapter nine of the book was entitled, Genocide. Genocide, a new word invented by Lemkin to describe the destruction of groups. It is an amalgam of the Greek word genos, meaning tribe or race, 
and the Latin word meaning side, killing. And here you see the word in Lemkin's own hand. In the summer of 1945, Lemkin was hired by the American government to work on the war crimes trial with Robert Jackson, but separately from Lauterpad. He wanted the senior Nazis to be indicted for genocide for the destruction of groups and was hugely disappointed when the Nuremberg Charter included crimes against humanity, but not genocide. He flew to London to draft the indictment of the defendants and was persistent. There was strong opposition to the concept of genocide from Robert Jackson's office under pressure from Southern US senators who were concerned that it would be used by African Americans to challenge discrimination against them, and the British objected to it because they were deeply worried about the legacy of colonialism. Would the former colonies use it against them? But against the odds, Lemkin's word made it into the indictment as a war crime to include the ill treatment and murder of civilians in occupied territories including Lemberg and Volkovisk, where his parents lived. Like Lauterpacht, he had no news of his family. This was now the first time the word was used in an international legal instrument with an agreed definition. In Lemkin's words, the extermination of racial and religious groups. And he identified those groups, to use his words, as Jews, Poles, gypsies, and others. The Nuremberg trial opened on November the 20th, 1945. Lauterpacht was present in the courtroom with the British team pushing for the protection of individuals. Lemkin stayed in Washington pushing for the protection of groups. One of the 22 men in the dock was this gentleman, Hans Frank, the fourth character in East West Street. He too was a lawyer, and in fact, he was Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer from 1928 to 1933. Hitler then appointed him Governor General of Nazi-occupied Poland in October 1939. Three years later, Frank visited Lemberg and the district of Galicia, newly conquered. He lodged with Otto Werchter, his deputy, who is the central character in the sequel to East West Street, The Rat Line, whose wife, Charlotte, was secretly in love with Hans Frank. Frank gave a series of speeches to announce the elimination of half a million Jews in the city and in the district. Amongst those who would be caught up in the horrors that followed Frank's visit and the words he spoke were the families, friends, and teachers, even, of Lauterpacht and Lemkin, as well as my grandfather's family. For each family, there would only be a single survivor. Three years later, in May 45, Frank was caught by the Americans in southern Bavaria. He had with him his diaries, 42 volumes, and a fantastic collection of artwork. And when I say fantastic, I mean fantastic. It included this painting, which many of you will know, the portrait of Cecilia Gallerani by Leonardo da Vinci. He took this painting with him from his private offices in the Wawel Castle in Krakow, where it hangs again 
today. Frank's son, Nicholas, once told me that as a young boy, his father would make him stand before this painting and slick down his hair like Cecilia Gallerani. But Frank was now in the dock, charged with crimes against humanity and genocide. On the first day of the trial, the Soviet prosecutors took the judges to the terrible events in Lemberg. They described the murder of 130,000 human beings in just a few months, including thousands and thousands of children. As these words were spoken in court, Lauterpacht and Lemkin did not know whether the victims included members of their own family. They didn't even know the man they were prosecuting, Hans Frank, was directly implicated in the unknown fate of their parents and their families. And as a courtroom lawyer, that fact really touches me very deeply. But it is on this day, for the first time in history, that the words genocide and crimes against humanity are used in a court of law. I knew Lauterpacht and Frank were in courtroom 600 together, and I wondered if there was a photograph of that. Lauterpacht's son, Ellie, told me there was no such photograph, but I didn't believe him, as I didn't believe my mother. I persisted, and eventually, in an obscure archive in London, I did find what it was that I was looking for. Here was Lauterpacht at the end of the British table in the top left-hand corner, hands clenched, listening to a Soviet prosecutor. If you move your eyes to the lower right-hand corner near Hermann Goering, familiar in his large white suit, you will see the head of Hans Frank, semi-bowed. Here they are, divided by no more than a few tables and chairs, Lauterpacht and Frank together in the same room. The trial lasts for a full year, and judgment is handed down on September the 30th and October the 1st, 1946. I don't have time this evening to address what transpired over the course of the remarkable year of that trial, as the lives of the three men became increasingly intertwined. The historian Anthony Beaver says that East West Street is like a story that no novel could possibly match. If it was fiction, no one would believe it. Life as literature and more. The simple point that I make is that their personal journeys coincided. They changed the course of legal history and then history itself. The words and ideas of Lauterpacht and Lemkin influenced politics, history, culture, my life, and your lives. Without Lauterpacht and Lemkin, there would be no Irish Commission of Human Rights and Equality. The concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide have not existed since time immemorial, as many imagine. They are the product of the creative, inventive minds of two men, an experience forged on the anvil of a single city. Why Lauterpacht opted for the protection of the individual and what caused Lemkin to embrace the protection of the group is a matter of speculation. Their backgrounds were similar. They studied at the same university. They had exactly the same teachers. Indeed, you can trace the origins of these two crimes and the origins of human rights to Lemberg after the Great War, to the law faculty, to a single teacher 
the two men had in common. Julius Makarevich, a Polish professor of criminal law. You can even follow the line to a single building and to a single room, which I visited, where Makarevich taught and is still a working classroom today. But curiously, despite their common origins, interests, and journeys, and despite the fact that I was able to locate these two men in the same city on the same day, although never in Nuremberg or courtroom 600, where they missed each other on one occasion by less than 24 hours, it seems that Lauterpacht and Lemkin never actually met. Their ideas inform my working life and the working lives of many people in this room. And I frequently wondered how it could be that I ended up doing the work that I do and how it was I who somehow came across their stories. My quest was surely driven by a personal history, by a legacy of memory and stories buried deep in a crypt of family secrets. That quest included a great deal of family detective work. I discovered who Miss Tilney was. Meet Miss Tilney. I learned what she did and have come to understand why my mother and I and my brother have reason to be grateful to a remarkable woman of extraordinary courage, a missionary at the Surrey Chapel in Norwich who was motivated to save people by a particular interpretation by her pastor of Paul's letter to the Romans. I stand before you today as a consequence of a single line of chapter 10, verse 1. That motivated her to travel to Vienna to bring my mother to Paris as a one-year-old and save her life in the summer of 1939. And I also uncovered the identity of the man in a bow tie. That was an even longer journey that took me first towards the east and then towards the rest. I crossed rivers and an ocean even and went through dozens of old Austrian telephone directories. I had to hire a private detective in Vienna, a remarkable lady. But I'm sorry to say that the code was finally cracked with Facebook. <laughs> and I ended up in an attic in Massapequa, Long Island, in New York, where the owner of a small bungalow house pulled this photograph out of a family album. Here was the photograph that unlocked the secret of my mother's family, a single image taken in a garden in Vienna in the spring of 1941. My grandmother in the middle with two men in white socks. The one, as you look at him on the right, is the man in the bow tie, and he was her secret lover. One discovery catalyzed another, the identity of the man who seems to have been my grandfather's true love, his closest friend, Max. There are many morals to this story, but one that plainly exists is that any of us in this room are inclined to have an intimate affair. We should not exclude the possibility that in 75 years' time, one of our grandchildren may discover with absolute certainty what happened. Efforts like this take years, and they involve the assistance of a remarkable group of individuals to whom I express constantly my gratitude. They are the requirements of an exercise 
in personal archaeological enterprise. Perhaps even more remarkably and unexpectedly, I learned of a more direct connection between my family and the Lauterpachs and the Lemkins. I was immensely surprised to learn that my great-grandmother, Amalia Buchholz, the mother of my grandfather, was born and lived in the small town of Zhulkiev, the same small town where Hirsch Lauterpacht was born. Indeed, they were not only born in the same area and in the same town, but on the very same street. You are looking at it, just a few hundred yards apart. It was called Lemberger Strasse back then, the street to Lemberg. Coincidentally, or perhaps not, Lauterpacht's son and only child, Ellie, who would much later marry a wonderful Irish lady called Cathy, was in 1982 my first teacher of international law, and he became my mentor. It was only after working together for 33 years that we learned we had a similar connection to this street, a street the great writer Joseph Roth called East-West Street. And then I learned that Amalia, whose life began on this street, the street of the Lauterpacts, ended on the 23rd of September 1942 in the kingdom of Hans Frank. The last street she ever walked down was Himmelfahrtstrasse, the street to heaven, which led from a railway platform to a gas chamber at a place called Treblinka. A month later, Lemkin's parents, Bella and Joseph, walked down the same street and were gassed in the very same gas chamber. Amalia's life was in this odd way caught between the Lauterpachs and the Lemkins, as it might be said is mine, albeit in a rather different way. How does one begin to understand these points of connection? Starting point, of course, is the ideas of Lauterpacht and Lemkin and the enduring relevance of their ideas today. What, one might ask, is the enduring legacy of these two legal terms and what is the path going forward? Today, once more, Carolyn mentioned it, a poison of xenophobia and populism and nationalism is coursing its way through the veins of Europe and many other parts of the world. The strong man as leader is back. I've seen it for myself on journeys in the central and eastern parts of our Europe. I've seen it in Hungary and in Ukraine. Those of you who saw my film, My Nazi Legacy, a BBC Storyville documentary, will have seen me standing in a faraway field near Brody, watching people dressed in SS uniforms celebrating the creation of the Waffen-SS Galicia Division. I've seen it too on my journeys in writing the new book, The Rat Line, which you can already listen to as a BBC podcast. Traveling across Europe, in Austria and Poland and other places, it's hard to avoid what is stirring and wondering to where this will lead. The generation that experienced the horrors of the 1930s, that lived through the Second World War, that knows why states came together after 1945 to create a United Nations and the very idea of human rights for all, who came together to adopt a universal declaration of human rights and a convention 
on the prevention and punishment of genocide, that generation will soon be gone. Perhaps it is the disappearance of actual memory, of actual experience, that allows some of our politicians to take for granted what occurred in 1945. Indeed, it's impossible not to have gone through the experience of writing East West Street, an immersion in the world of the years between 1914 and 1945, and not feel an acute sense of anxiety as to our present times, not least since the two countries that did so much to create the modern system of human rights, the United States and the United Kingdom, are beating a retreat from the multilateral order. The man who's now President of the United States, as a candidate, called for, I quote, a total and complete shutdown for Muslims entering the United States, end of quote. The idea of targeting human beings, not because of what they've done, not because of their individual propensities, but because they happen to be a member of a particular group, has a long, dark, and terrible history. The writer Primo Levi put the point more crisply than anyone in the preface to his book, If This Is a Man, published in 1947. He wrote, many people, many nations, can find themselves holding more or less wittingly that every stranger is an enemy. When this happens, when the unspoken dogma becomes the major premise in a syllogism, then at the end of the chain, there is the concentration camp. One thing leads to another. When you start to single out people, not for what they have actually done, but because they happen to be a member of a particular group, or because they feel themselves to be a citizen of the world. Just recently, the former British Prime Minister, Theresa May, who once expressed the desire to take the United Kingdom out of the European Convention on Human Rights, seems to have been blissfully unaware of the implications of what she was really saying when she said, and I quote, if you believe you are a citizen of the world, you are a citizen of nowhere. Her words reminded me of a passage in Stefan Zweig's magnificent book, The World of Yesterday the one book I would say everyone should read to understand what is happening today, which was published posthumously in 1942 after Zweig committed suicide in Brazil. For almost half a century, Zweig wrote, I trained my heart to beat as the heart of a citizen of the world. On the day I lost my Austrian passport, I discovered that when you lose your native land, you are losing more than a patch of territory within set borders. One thing leads to another, across time and across place. You know this in Ireland. You're aware of the legacy of colonialism. You are aware of the legacy of colonialism and of its continuation. And you know all about transitional justice how the language of law and human rights has played a role in helping many to move to a better path. In fact, my next book, The Rat Line, is a tale of love and denial, of Nazis, of spies, of Rome, of the Vatican, and a couple called the Wächters, Otto and Charlotte. It's also a story of transitional justice, 
He disappeared in 1945. He'd been indicted for mass murder as a governor in Krakow and Galicia and as an SS Gruppenführer, where I discovered actually he was a close colleague of a man called Otto Skorzeny, who later bought himself a farm in County Kildare. Four years after Wächter disappeared, he reached Rome, and he was secretly lodged in the Vigna Pia Monastery, occupying a monk's cell as he gathered the materials to make his way to safety in South America. Believing himself to be a hunted man, it turned out that he never did find safety, and he died in unexpected circumstances. What he did not know was that those who were hunting him those who wanted to submit him to the force of the law and justice for his actions, then decided to change direction and to recruit senior Nazis to assist in the struggle against the new enemy, the Soviets. Those of you who've listened to the podcast of The Rat Line may have heard episode six, in which there is an appearance by the writer John le Carré who expressed surprise when, as a young soldier working in Austria in 1949, he encountered the new reality. It was bewildering, he told me. I'd been brought up to hate Nazism and that stuff, and all of a sudden to find that we'd turned on a sixpence and were the great enemy. The great new enemy was to be the Soviet Union. That was very, very perplexing. The connection between law and justice, between transition and reconciliation, is as real in this part of the world as anywhere. The Good Friday Agreement, a treaty under international law with matters of justice at its fore, places the commitment to a shared system of human rights standards and mechanisms at its heart. The British government and the Irish government have committed to the incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights into the law of Northern Ireland, with direct access to the courts and with remedies for breaches of the European Convention, including the power for the courts to overrule legislation by the Assembly in Stormont on grounds of inconsistency with the European Convention. It creates a new Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and, of course, the Irish government committed in the Good Friday Agreement to establish a Human Rights Commission with a mandate and remit equivalent to that within Northern Ireland. It could be said that my presence here today is a consequence of the Good Friday Agreement and that commitment, a commitment which extends to a joint committee of representatives of the two bodies to offer a forum for the consideration of human rights issues across the whole of the island of Ireland. These are major commitments under international law, agreed in 1998. But of course, things have changed since 1998. And in particular, the United Kingdom has gradually moved to a rather different approach in its engagement with the world. Brexit and taking back control have become the mantra. I read this morning wonderful Fintan O'Toole's latest analysis. We turn to Irish writers to understand what on earth is going on in the United Kingdom. And there have been suggestions, again, 
the United Kingdom might even review its engagement with the European Convention on Human Rights, even if that raises issues about the long-term viability of the Good Friday Agreement. Now, I've tasted firsthand what this might mean. From 2010 to 2012, I served on an eight-person British government commission on a Bill of Rights. It was created by the coalition government of Conservatives and Liberal Democrats with a mandate to explore the replacement of the 1998 Human Rights Act with a British Bill of Rights. The Commission did not achieve a consensus, and one of the reasons was Northern Ireland. The Commission simply could not find a way to supplant the Human Rights Act with something else, because the ECHR, the European Convention, which it incorporates, is wired into the Good Friday Agreement and the legislation on devolution around the United Kingdom. In other words, in other words, it is the United Kingdom's commitment to human rights in international law and to the European Convention on Human Rights in particular, which is the glue that now holds the United Kingdom together. In short, the UK cannot leave the ECHR without violating the Good Friday Agreement. This means, in my view, that it cannot and will not leave the ECHR until Northern Ireland is no longer a part of the United Kingdom. Given the recent election result, with the remarkable vote in Northern Ireland, in which for the first time in history, nationalist parties elected more members of the Westminster Parliament than unionist parties and got more votes, that moment seems to have come a tad closer. But it is plain that our modern system of human rights that was put in place in 1945, with the United Nations and Nuremberg following in short order, and then followed by the Universal Declaration and the 1948 Convention on Genocide, the first modern human rights treaty, is under real threat. There are signs that the fabric that created the 1945 settlement may be unravelling. How ironic that those pulling on the strings include not only the Orbans and Bolsonaros and Duterte's of the world, but the Trumps and the Johnsons. It appears that Britain and the United States, as they retreat from their commitment to a multilateral legal order, are a part of the problem, not the solution. In the case of the former, the United Kingdom, it seems that a residue of imperial hubris, a legacy of colonialism, no doubt, of which Northern Ireland remains a part, is a driving force. I felt that recently very acutely in one of my cases. I've been counsel for Mauritius in the proceedings before the International Court of Justice in the advisory opinion concerning the Chagos Archipelago, which includes the island of Diego Garcia. On the 25th of February this year, the court ruled without a single dissent on the substance that the United Kingdom's dismemberment of Mauritius back in 1945 was a violation of the right of Mauritius and its people to self-determination under international law. As a consequence, the court ruled, Chagos is and always has been a part of Mauritius 
and the United Kingdom is an illegal occupier. The court concluded that the United Kingdom is, I quote, under an obligation to bring to an end its administration of the Chagos archipelago as rapidly as possible, end of quote. Three months later, in May of this year, the General Assembly of the United Nations voted a resolution by an overwhelming majority. The United Kingdom and the United States persuaded just four countries in the whole world to vote against that resolution out of 200. It resolved that the United Kingdom must leave Chagos by the 22nd of November, just three weeks ago. The date has come and gone, and the UK remains an illegal occupier, just like South Africa was an illegal occupier of the territory of Southwest Africa after 1971. The United Kingdom has also refused to give effect to the requirements of the ruling and of the General Assembly that the population of Chagossians, who were forcibly removed, 2,000 of them, between 1968 and 1973, have a right to return to their homes. In my view, it is strongly arguable that the failure to give effect to that right of return in relation to those who wish to return is a crime against humanity within the meaning of Article 7 of the ICC statute. That is modern Britain. But it is not, I think, all gloomy. Last week I was in The Hague, as was mentioned by Carolyn, appearing at the International Court on a case under the 1948 Genocide Convention. I found myself in the most curious situation of addressing the court on behalf of the Gambia about the atrocities perpetrated by Myanmar against the Rohingya community with Nobel Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi standing about two feet to my left. The fact that the Gambia brought the case, supported by all 56 other members of the Organization of the Islamic Conference, along with Canada and the Netherlands, is a first example ever of an international actio popularis in relation to the field of human rights, the rights guaranteed by the 1948 convention that was the invention of Lemkin, which, of course, did not exist at the time of the atrocities that took place between 1933 and 1945. Who knows, perhaps Ireland too will join in that case. Aung San Suu Kyi, winner of a Nobel Prize, although no longer recognized to have the freedom of Dublin, an honor that was removed by the City Council two years ago, appeared on behalf of her country. She was the agent. She was the head of delegation. She addressed the court on two occasions. She denied that any acts of genocide were occurring, but notably, she failed to mention the word Rohingya at all, and she failed to address at all the rape and sexual violence that is occurring on an almost industrial scale on the territory of her country. But she did say one thing that I and others thought was notable, and I quote, international law, she said, may well be our only global value system. International law may well be our only global value system. And, she continued, international justice is a practice that affirms our common 
values. It is that sentiment which underscores the vital importance of the 1945 moment. The protection of human rights is embedded into the core of international law, and international law is now embedded into the core of our very being. I do not believe in the long run that the values of human rights will be easily dislodged any more than the values of international law will be dislodged. Of this I was reminded when I recall as a young academic being invited to a lunch with a more senior colleague at Cambridge University, Sir John Baker, Professor of English Legal History. He liked to ask what I was working on when I had those lunches. And in response to my answer of some obscure point of international law or human rights that I was engaged in, he'd look at me knowingly and he would say, ah, yes, Philippe, we had a similar problem in English law in about 1472, and it took 200 years to sort it out. The protection of human rights and the values of international law are a long game, locally, nationally, regionally, globally. It is two steps forward, one step sideways, one step backwards, one step forward again. Despite the present travails, despite certain important countries turning their view inwards, I believe that the path of human rights may be crooked, but it continues and it will go gaily forward. Thank you very much indeed. and sweeping narrative um, which was global, local, interwove themes and tales of a personal nature with those of global events. I think the words that came to mind are those that actually um, John Le Carre used in relation to one of Philippe's books was that it was gripping, furious and very serious indeed. So that's Philippe's hands has kindly agreed to take a number of questions, and I know we have roving mics at either side of the room. So I'm going to take a seat and then, or perhaps maybe stay here and see if I can identify people. If you could just raise your hand if you have a question, keep it as succinct as possible so that we can get as many people as possible and as would like to engage with Philippe and to engage and converse with him. And if you might, if you don't mind, at the beginning perhaps indicate just who you are for the purposes of, of, of other members of the audience so we can have a general discussion. Okay. I'll stand up because it's people at the back can't see us. So we stand up? People at the back can't see okay. us. We're going to stand so that everybody can see us and hopefully everybody can hear us and we're doing the right things with our mics. Okay? Good. Okay. There's somebody just here. Great. Hi, good evening. Thank you very much, Professor Sons. My name is Maureen Dennehy. I'm a former prosecutor at the ICTY in The Hague and a partner here in Dublin now. Um, and you mentioned the issue of statelessness during your um, wonderful uh, discussion and 
speech to us this evening. Can you comment on the British government's position in relation to Shamima Begum, uh, the former ISIS uh, wife, and how that compares to Lisa Smith? Lisa Smith is a former Defence Force um, personnel who's recently returned to Ireland and she's currently in custody. Um, can you just comment on, on the differences, perhaps, of the way in which both governments have um, approached that? Should we get one question? Yes, let's do that. I don't know the, the Lisa Smith um, story. I do know the Begum story in the UK. She is a UK national who went to Syria when she was 15 years old. Um, she had no other nationality at the time. Uh, she was involved with the man who fought for ISIS, who was killed, I think. She had a number of children who have been killed or who have died. And the British government, in its wisdom, decided to strip her of her UK nationality in circumstances in which it said that she was entitled to apply for the nationality of Bangladesh. And the mere fact that she was able to apply for that other nationality, said the British government, meant that she was not made a stateless person when the UK removed her British nationality. Now, this matter is before the courts in England right now. In fact, some of my colleagues, the colleague that I argued the Gambia case with last week from Matrix Chambers is one of the counsel in that case. So I was you know, interested to learn more about it. The publicly stated position of Bangladesh is that if she were to apply for the nationality of Bangladesh, she would not get it, and I think I'm sort of paraphrasing, but if that she were ever to turn up in Bangladesh, she would be report, deported or worse. My own view is that as a matter of international law, not English law, the fact that someone is entitled to apply for the nationality of another country does not mean they have the nationality of that other country. And so in international legal terms, the stripping of her British nationality is inconsistent with the international law conventions, including a European convention, which prohibit making a person stateless. The logic behind the rule in international law, which was adopted after 1945, is that it, the horrors begin with many different acts, but making people statelessness is often step one, because if they're stateless, they have no protections under traditional international law vis-a-vis -a, -vis a particular state. So once you've done it once, it's the thin end of the wedge, and I think it then begins. Anyone you don't like, you just make them stateless, and that's how the problems begin. So I'm very opposed to it, and as a matter of international law, my position is very clear. She has no other nationality and she therefore has been subjected to an international legal wrong, but that's the position, in my view, under international law, not under English law, which may take a different view. I don't know the situation in Ireland, I'm afraid. Thank you. But just here, then I'll come back, then here. Thank you very much. Uh, Colin Rafter is my name. I retired from the Department of Foreign Affairs some years ago. I'm not a lawyer, but whisper it. Um, what do you say to people who say that what we call economic, social and cultural rights are not really that important? Thank you. 
What I would say to those who say economic and social rights are not that important is they're wrong. Um, I think part of the reason, I mean, it's a really big question, it's a really important question that you're asking, and I think it's a complex question, but I think looking at what's happened in the United Kingdom and the United States, one of the narratives that explains how the two countries have turned inwards and away from the very order they created is the disparities in well-being, the inequalities in those two countries. I don't know how much time you spent traveling around the United Kingdom, but it is deeply shocking. If you compare London with um, the constituencies where people have basically given up, have very little aspirations in terms of economic well-being, and in Britain, it's plain that the ignoring of economic and social rights has left vast swathes of people feeling completely let down by globalization, regionalization, and the trickle-down arguments. So the question that arises is how do we address those inequalities and that sense of desperation that causes people to vote for Brexit and for Donald Trump. I mean, if you go up as I do to some parts of Northern England, school kids will just tell you my parents voted for it because it couldn't get worse than what it is now. And that's not stupidity. That's actually maybe a very rational uh, form of behavior. And the question that I think you're essentially asking is how do we put on the agenda economic well-being, social well-being, and the law has to be part of that. So I think one of the things we have to re-explore in countries like the United Kingdom and the United States is what we do about economic and social rights. But of course, both countries now have governments in place who are strongly against that particular idea. So it's not gonna happen in the UK. My own view is it should happen. We have to address inequality because if we don't address inequality, we're heading to an even worse place. We have wood here in front. Hello, thank you for a wonderful lecture. And when you were aside from my question, the personal narrative of your family really is helpful to draw you in into a more global narrative of history. So thank you. My question is more domestic rather than global. So I hope it's not too mundane, but nonetheless really important in Ireland. Our system of direct provision and how we hold people who are migrants. And I know you have it in the UK as well, but at the moment, through the rise of populism, neoliberalism, added with a huge injection of new style racism on top of the old style, it's really difficult 
to understand how lawyers when they're on human rights side or the other side are using a particular language that alienates the individual the individuals who need to empower themselves around advocacy and human rights. And I think when we talk about human rights and genocide, whether it's in Rwanda or anywhere else on the globe, we forget about disabled children, disabled women, deaf women who are used as pawns by, by various bodies. So I just wondered, would you comment on what I said? I'm not sure what my question was, but you will, mm. you will interfere. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, just thank you again. It's another hugely important question. It's in two parts. Let me just say, in relation to the point that you make about the relation of the personal narrative to the bigger legal and political story, it's why the book took so long to write, because it was so difficult to find a way to weave um, a personal story with a big political and legal story. In fact, it's funny, I, I came to Dublin today, I took the tube from home to London City Airport, and on the tube, I happened to sit opposite the wonderful woman who was my literary agent in that period from 2010 to 2016, Jill Coleridge. And she was taking her two grandchildren to the Museum of London for a day out with grandma, which was wonderful. And I said to her, do you remember? And before I'd finished my sentence, she said, yes, you walking around a courtyard trying to persuade me. And what she was referring to was there was a day in about 2014 where I called her up. I was sitting, I remember it well, I was sitting as an arbitrator in a case at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which raises lots of incredibly interesting human rights issues. And in the lunch break, I decided I would call Jill and persuade her that what was needed for this book was to separate out the personal story, my grandfather's story, and the big political and legal story, and I had the brilliant idea of writing two books. Let's just do one about my granddad, one about the other story, and it'll just be so much easier to write. And for an hour, I walked around a courtyard with her on the, her on the other end of the telephone, telling me why that was a terrible idea. And just this morning, for the umpteenth time, I thanked her, because it, I think what makes the book different is the melding of the personal, exactly the point that you make. So I have a little knowledge about what you're talking about, direct provision. I went to give a talk at university in Limerick, um, maybe earlier this year, maybe it was I think about February, and it was interesting, the University of Limerick had a um, program that brought some of these children who were refugees into the university to enable them to study and get a degree. And I, it was explained to me, I think, by the provost, what a nightmare it was under Irish law for a university 
to give them free education. It was incredible. It was just absolutely incredible. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, the obstacles the university had to go through. I met some of these students. They were fantastic people who'd had stories of escape. And the idea that they now arrive in Ireland and were having difficulty just doing a four-year degree at the University of Limerick where the university was going to waive their rights, but the university couldn't waive their rights because that was effectively a financial contribution and they couldn't receive a financial contribution. And in any case, they had to be home by six o'clock and back in there wherever they were living. It was a real eye-opener to me because I think of Ireland as a country that has a certain openness uh, to a community of that kind. Now, I don't know the domestic political considerations that caused that to happen, but it's an issue, and you, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, which goes to the relationship between the individual and the group. Why would we, as a community, it's not a critique of Ireland or of any other country, but why would we as a community say that there's a whole category of human beings who happen to have fled terrible places, who are in the process of getting refugee status, because of that status, they can't study at the university. It just seems problematic. Now, there may be a rational explanation for it. I haven't yet heard it. Um, so I'm being very careful as a visitor to Ireland. I don't want to get involved in domestic Irish matters. That is not for me to comment on, but I was very struck by that. I was very struck by the placing of a label on young people of 17 and 18 and 19, wonderful young people trying just to be students, struggling to be students because they couldn't for example, at the weekend, go to some sort of event that was at the university because on Saturdays and Sundays they've got to stay in a particular building and they're not allowed out of the building. They also told me the most amazing stories. I really couldn't believe it. They, one of them told me a story, it really stuck with me of, so I'm going on, but this really, really touched me. She said, she said, it's wonderful. I mean, I'm really grateful to be here and in a sense, I'm really well looked after. I have a bed, I have a hot shower, I am now able to come to the university for certain parts of the day. But what I really crave is food from my own culture. And I'm not allowed to have food from my own culture. I have to, I have to eat what I'm given and I'm not allowed to cook for myself. I said, what? And she explained to me how she had brought a single heat, someone had given her a single you know, stove, you plug it in and you can cook your rice or whatever it is you want to cook. And it had been confiscated and thrown away. And I just thought to myself, well, what's the point of that? I mean, why, why I mean, probably it happens in the United Kingdom and other places also. But it raises that fundamental question of the individual and the group and the labeling of entire communities because they happen to have a certain status. It, it raises serious questions. Okay, we have time for just a few more questions. There's somebody here and then in front and then at the back. Thank you so much. <laughs> just the end. Yeah. Uh, the, the... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, thank you, my name is William Quill, uh, a barrister. 
Um, and just you talked a little bit about the commitments that the United Kingdom has to the Good Friday Agreement. And I think under the Good Friday Agreement, these would continue as, as commitments in international law, regardless of the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. So that even after a possible referendum that allowed in Ireland to take place, the United Kingdom would remain committed to the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. And, and so what, how would you envisage that, the effect of that continuing on the United Kingdom, whether they might, might resolve from it, and on questions such as, uh, that are being discussed at the moment, immunity for members of security forces who committed crimes uh, while wearing the British Army or the uh, security forces. Thank you. Do you mind if we take the other two, Philippe, with it? Sure. Yes, yeah, so we just, again, maybe take yours. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor. That was uh, an incredible lecture that you gave us. Uh, my name is Cecilia Amabo. Uh, my question is related to the issue of uh, crimes against humanity and genocide. We talked about, you mentioned that uh, Chapter 6 of the Nuremberg uh, Charter, Article 6 uh, of the Nuremberg Charter incorporated the word crimes against humanity. And we've seen what happened in Rwanda. And we heard the slogan that world leaders said that never again would they allow things like that to happen. But after Rwanda, we've seen a lot of countries still being uh, purged into these uh, war crimes. And the perpetrators of these crimes have actually not been uh, brought to justice. And still this is continuing to happen. And I speak particularly of what is happening right now in Southern Cameroons, which a lot of people are being killed. And I'm wondering what, what is the international community doing or the international legal system doing to actually bring the perpetrators of this act to justice in order to deter it from being uh, continuously committed because I see it continually happening, but these laws are there, we talk about it, but nothing is, no sanctions are done. Thank you very much. And then maybe just at the back, we take the third. Two, yeah. Good evening, um, Professor Philippe. My name is Sinead Doom. I am a socially engaged artist, among other things. And my question is to do with um, human rights, globalization, and competition. And one of the things that you mentioned was the incorporation, or a question that was asked was the incorporation of social and economic um, and status in terms of as a human rights and protection. And I'm just wondering, how do you see that playing its part given the, resp oh, given the respective different labels and statuses that we have, and how these different laws that are enacted find themselves in competition with each other and as such, people and different respective groups are then put in competition with each other, especially by the state. And how these, in some cases, this is purposely done. Um, for example, if you, you spoke about the, the group that you met in Limerick, um, who are being afforded free education, we have the traveling community here, again, who are still not being addressed. I think it was in 2018, over half of the allocation for traveler housing has still not been, I mean in 2019, over half of the allocation for traveler accommodation has not been spent. So I'm just curious about that. Thank you. Thank you for these amazing questions, each of which we could talk about for hours. They go to the heart 
of so many of the issues. Let me just take them in order. So I am most definitely not an expert on the Good Friday Agreement. I'm going to be very careful what I say about it. But let us imagine a scenario in which there is a referendum, in which the North votes to join or rejoin. I'm always careful how one calls it. Um, they want a united Ireland. Let's put it like that. And Ireland votes and agrees. I assume that what happens next, in some form over some period, is that Northern Ireland ceases to be part of the United Kingdom. And at that point, when Northern Ireland ceases to be part of the United Kingdom, presumably the United Kingdom says, well, why do we need a commitment to do all of these things? They're now subsumed into the law of Ireland. But that's, of course, not explicitly provided for. So we do not know. Um, these questions are going to be asked now, I think, for the first time, with a real currency. They'll be asked certainly in Dublin and Ireland. Will they be asked in London and in other parts of the United Kingdom? You've seen the rather cavalier way in which the issue of Northern Ireland has been addressed by the present British Prime Minister. Um, I can only talk about it from my perspective of being on that commission of a Bill of Rights. It was, it was unbelievable. Um, there were eight of us, four appointed by the Conservative Party, four appointed by other parties. I was in the other party list. The four appointed by the Conservative Party were literally just hell-bent on getting rid of the European Convention on Human Rights and the Human Rights Act. They didn't care how you did it. And they didn't care what the consequences were, literally, for the Good Friday Agreement. They just wanted out. And these are people who now have the ear of the current Prime Minister. So I have to assume that the view that he is getting is we're not going to be too concerned about fine points of legal detail and we are going to have to find political solutions to this. I mean, we had a candidate for prime minister. Basically, you know, you've, I don't know how many of you have read Fintan O'Toole's article this morning in The Guardian, uh, and I agree with the analysis. Basically, Boris Johnson, as a candidate, just lied about whether or not there will be checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom on the sale of goods. There will be checks. The law is absolutely clear. But serially, he said that was not the case. What is he going to do when it comes to the Good Friday Agreement provisions, which are absolutely crystal clear? And we get a flavor for that in the run-up to the election when the Conservative Party floats the idea that members of the UK armed forces will be granted an immunity from prosecution, civil or criminal, in relation to crimes that may have been committed during the Troubles. Well, okay, that's your government's political commitment, but there's a bit of a problem, because there's something called the European Convention on Human Rights, which basically says it's not apparent that that is a policy you can implement without bringing yourself into violation 
of various international human rights instruments, including the European Convention. But again, the attitude seems to be, we don't care. That's what we're going to do. And by hook or by crook, we're going to do it. Now, the reality of government is another matter. Um, and they will confront the reality of the courts in the United Kingdom, of a civil service that is a very fine civil service that will remind ministers about their responsibilities under international agreements. But I think the reason for anxiety is a broader picture which I described very briefly, namely the United Kingdom turning its back on international agreements. I mean, 10 years ago, if you had said to me the United Kingdom would ignore a ruling of the International Court of Justice and an almost overwhelming decision of the General Assembly that they have to leave the Chagos Archipelago, I would have said the UK is a law, rule of law country, global citizen, it will eventually find a way to comply with that. But they've said no, they've stuck two fingers up at it. So for Ireland, that's significant. And it means you can expect, I think in Ireland, a raft of difficulties in the weeks and months and years ahead with a government that has apparently a semi-detached relationship to the rule of law insofar as international matters are concerned, but possibly also domestic matters. And on crimes against humanity, you raise a point that I alluded to, but probably so subtly that I didn't make it clear enough. So I'm going to address it again by reference to something I touched upon in the lecture. You're absolutely right. Whether it's southern Cameroon or Rwanda or the Rohingya in Myanmar or many other communities around the world, justice is not being done. And that is in part because the system of modern international criminal justice created in 1945 is in its infancy. You can't, as I tell my students, suddenly create laws in 1945 and imagine that within 75 years all will be absolutely fine. There will be justice, there will be no impunity, there will be criminal proceedings against the worst perpetrators. No, it's a really, really long game. But it doesn't begin now, and it doesn't begin only with people in Rwanda or southern Cameroon or other places. It's the reason I mentioned the anecdote of John le Carre. I mean, imagine that story. It's 1949. You are a British soldier who has identified, through your interrogations of German captives, a man who is a governor who has perpetrated mass murder on an industrial scale, and you are told by your superiors to lose the file. Hire this guy. He knows who all the Soviet agents are. We don't care what he did four years ago. He's now on our side. That was the decision that was taken. So the problem doesn't start today. The problem began immediately in 1945. And the problem began with the countries that created the system. I can't give you any decent answer apart from to say, as I do to my students, it's a long game. We've got to keep pointing this out. We simply have to keep going. And over a multi-decade, multi-century period, as John Baker, the English legal historian, described to me when I was a young academic, it will change. 
but it won't change overnight. And the problems you describe are real and are seriously problematic. And they create, as I saw in the courtroom in The Hague last week, remarkably, and it was very moving, three members of the Rohingya community who were on the delegation of the Gambia, sitting in the same room as Aung San Suu Kyi, feeling at one time terrible, because this was the person who was effectively the de facto prime minister of the country that had done the most terrible things to these three individuals and their communities. They both lost their entire families, the two ladies. And on the other hand, they felt they got their day in court. And they felt that some degree of justice had been done because the world's media spotlight was on a leader who found herself in a very, very uncomfortable position. The question about competition between groups, it's a similar, it's a similar answer. Um, it's a real mystery to me how that works out. Uh, again, by reference to one story that I told you, it's not an internal story, but an international story. How could it be that the United Kingdom tells the 2,000 population of the Falkland Islands Malvinas that their rights and their interests and their desires are absolutely paramount and we will send battleships to the South Atlantic to protect those rights on the one hand, but for the 2,000 strong community, same number, amazingly enough, on the Chagos Archipelago, who were removed between 1968 and 1973, and who want to go back, your interests are not paramount. And we're not going to give effect to your interests. Now, what is the only difference between the two communities? And I say this with great sadness. One community is black, and one community is white. I'm afraid it is as simple as that. And that distinction between different communities, creating hierarchies, communities that we give greater respect to and greater preference to as opposed to other communities, is a reality probably in just about every country in the world. And your vitally important question raises this fundamental question of what do we do about it in law? How does the law address the reality that there probably isn't a community in the world that does not in some way preferentiate one community, one group over another group? And that brings me back to the lecture and to the heart of East-West Street and to this battle between the individual and the group. Lauterpach's idea was that the only way you could address these kinds of issues, including on economic and social rights, was to set aside the question of group identity and give every human being <coughs> rights simply because they were a human being, irrespective of their nationality, their religion, their race, their ethnicity, their, today it would be include sexual orientation and, and other considerations. Lemkin said no. No, we can't go that way because, he said, the reality in the world is that people are targeted 
because they're hated at a particular moment in time and place. In order to protect the individual, you have to protect the group. And Lemkin produced his list of groups. But of course, if you produce a list of some groups, you leave out other groups. So in 1945, sexual orientation was not an issue. Uh, that was at the fore, if it existed at all. And so that group is not included. So killing a group because of issues of sexual orientation is not addressed in the Genocide Convention. Does that make it lawful? Absolutely not in, that, in my view. But it wouldn't, as the law stands, make it genocidal to destroy a group because of issues of sexual orientation. Lauterpach's response to Lemkin was, the problem with protecting groups beyond the difficulty of listing all the different groups, which will never happen, they'll always leave some groups out. I mean, in the Rohingya case, it was incredible. Myanmar has a list of 135 groups and communities that are recognized in domestic law. The Rohingya community is not on that list. And so Aung San Suu Kyi will not use the word Rohingya. She will refer to them either as Bengalis or the Muslims of Rakhine State which for them is very problematic. And for many other people, it's very problematic. Lauterpach said the problem with the creation of a group-based approach is that you will end up replacing the tyranny of the state with the tyranny of groups. And you will turn one group against another group. And my own work on some genocide cases, I'm thinking of Yugoslavia, where I've seen you know, the anger, for example, of one community that I worked for many years for Croatia, trying to prove that a genocide had happened in Vukovar, which we failed on. And the failure to prove a genocide at Vukovar created an even greater anger against other groups. I was told on more than one occasion, it's so unfair. The Bosnian Muslims got a genocide for Srebrenica. We didn't get one for Vukovar. Why are we being discriminated against? It's the sort of law of unintended consequences. You have a good idea, create these new laws, but in elaborating a list of groups to be protected, you inadvertently, by not listing certain groups, create other groups which, in effect, feel themselves or are actually targeted. I can't answer in short order your question. It goes to the heart of human identity. Why is it that we have this connection, each of us in different ways, with certain groups, which causes us or many of us to have a desire to provide certain protections to certain groups, but not to others? That competition is one that we struggle to deal with in international law, but which is also a real issue, as you know, in domestic law. For example, in the United States, the whole debate right now on affirmative action, on letting people into universities who come from disadvantaged communities, is right now again being litigated before the US federal courts. You've asked a hugely, hugely important question. I wish I had a simple answer. I don't. It goes to the heart of our question of identity and the, and the way the law functions.
Thank you. I'm going to draw this session to a close because I think it has been very wide-ranging. It has been totally profound. I think the questions have got the answers that will keep us going in terms of informal discussions for the remainder of the evening. I'd like on your behalf to thank um, Philippe Sands, who I think has given us a tour de force. It has been an amazing inaugural annual lecture, and I know that it has set the tone um, and the standard for lectures to come. It's been simply a marvellous evening, and I think his ability to weave the personal, the political, the global, and the local, and show such an understanding of the values that lie behind human rights, as well as his passion for both ideas and language, really shone through. And perhaps it's appropriate then that I um, give to you a gift on behalf of the Commission, some books. And these are two poetry books. One is Seamus Heaney's, the latest collection put together by his family, and the other is um, Ivan Boland about Dublin. So um, I think you'll enjoy them both. And on behalf of everyone here and the Commission, thank you so much for delivering a wonderful lecture this evening. <laughs>